Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. All right, I am Rob Jam. And Megan McHugh. And good news from the Academy Award nominations. Nom, 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 nom. Yes, so we obviously loads of nominations, lots of uh, films and talent to call out, but we wanted to focus here on Zero G on everything, everywhere, all at once, of course, a fave of the show, and just wanted to call out that, um, yeah, after sweeping through like the Critics' Choice Awards and the Golden Globes, everything, everywhere, all at once, that kind of weird multiverse, time-bending, genre-bending film is up for 11 Academy Awards this year. And it's actually the film with the most nominations, which is amazing. Mm. And it is an A24 film. A24 is obviously a studio that just churns out gold, basically. And A24 is actually leading other studios with more nominations, uh, more nominations than Netflix even, which is very interesting. So uh, as for what the nominations are, Michelle Yeoh, uh, in no surprise, has been nominated for Best Actress. And if she wins, she will indeed be the first Asian actress to take the statue, which is both amazing and a bit mind-boggling, to be honest. Um, and then, mm. of course, Ki Hui Kwan, who has several trophies at home already from this year's awards circuit, and Stephanie Su are both nominated for their supporting roles alongside Yo, with Jamie Lee Curtis also getting her very first Oscar nomination. Aww. She's Yeah, I know. I, I can't believe it. Uh, nominated up alongside Sue for Supporting Actress, mm. uh, which is, I think, watching these guys on the awards circuit and just the genuine speeches, interactions and support of each other is just, I don't know, it's just a real spiritual palate cleanser. Uh, in addition to the four acting nods, the film is also nominated for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, Best Original Score, Best Director, Best Film Editing and Best Costume Design. Hmm. And whatever happens, somewhere in the multiverse they'll sweep it. Exactly. And in our hearts they've swept it for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now you also have some information about a game and we wanted to do this this week because we're going to end up having a look at the TV show, so. Yes. So I think... The Last of Us has just come out or started coming out. It's an HBO series, so here in Oz you can watch it on Binge. So in light of the fact that that's a brand-new hot TV show, very much within our wheelhouse that we will probably cover, wanted to do a bit of a look back at the video games because it is, of course, coming from the original content, which was a series of video games that was released by the studio Naughty Dog, and it's published by Sony and they're PlayStation exclusive. So these games are actually at the top of the list for people usually when they get a PlayStation for the first time or whatever, because they're just so beloved by audiences and critics. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a survival horror action adventure, which is a lot of words strung together, but basically means apocalypse time, fighting for your life, that kind of thing. Uh, It is, so it is zombie apocalypse of a sort, but it's also a lot more than that. And the reason why the game has kind of persisted in the hearts and minds of people in the industry and gaming fans is because of its use of narrative and character development. So it's the game's directed by Bruce Straley and Neil Druckmann. Druckmann is actually sort of the creator of the uh, video game series and he wrote, um, wrote it as well. And I think 
this figure might be outdated, but around 37 million games sold. There are several parts to The Last of Us. So there is also a DLC, which is like a downloadable extra uh, that was released after the first part called Left Behind. The very first game, the very first time it was released, the very first time it was playable was in 2013 on the PlayStation 3. Now, confusingly, there's been a lot of remasters and things that have been released. They did a remastered version for the PlayStation 4, which came out one year later in 2014. That's the version that I played my first playthrough. Part 2 for the series was released recently in 2020. So Last of Us Part 2 was released uh, on the PlayStation 4 and it won like hundreds of Game of the Year awards. It was very well received. It had been long awaited, obviously, because that's a fairly decent wait in video game terms for a sequel. Uh, And very, very recently, probably in light of the series coming out, they did a remake. So the difference between the remake and the remaster game is it's released for the PlayStation 5, which is the latest console, and they've spruced up all the visuals. So it's got a whole new look. It just looks so much better. It's faster. It runs a bit smoother and basically just looks a lot better. And apparently there are some revisions to gameplay, but there's no real big changes. It's still quite similar to the base game. Is that a whole thing? I mean, that's the first time I've ever heard of a a remake of a video game. Yeah, so it's something they're starting to do more and more now that there's some real top-tier beloved games like this game, The Witcher 3 and so on, that they want to get new audiences for. And usually it's a tie-in with some kind of TV show or other material that's coming out, such as The Witcher TV show. They will do these remakes that are trying Mm. to entice new players to play the game and probably people who started, didn't finish, who've always been wanting to play it and haven't. So, And we've come a long way in terms of visuals as to Mm. how the original game looked and what the capacity for visuals is now. Uh, so I think it it's something they're starting to do more and more. I think it's an interesting concept personally. Um, I think the original game looks fine and I think you still get a lot out of it, but I think some people really like being able to play a brand new uplifted experience. So, mm-hmm. so as I mentioned, it is often spoken about as one of the best video games of recent times. It's a triple A title. So its popularity is due to its approach to narrative. So it is very much a bit like a playable movie in a lot of ways. There's realistic characterization. It's quite emotional. There's moral decisions and story arcs that you go on as part of the game. The voice acting and motion capture is outstanding and that really brings it to life as a game. So it's more than just, um, you know, shooting enemies or a basic Mm. story. It's really fleshed out to be this whole game experience. And that's kind of what set it apart at the time and probably continues to make it quite enduring because it was such an immersive and affecting, as immersive and affecting as film, TV, and so on, yeah. uh, which, of course, did make it perfect fodder for being uh, adapted into a TV show, which it has been done, which has just started coming out. It's still being released week to week uh, and probably bringing a lot more attention back to the original game. Mm. Okay. So uh, just a little brief bit about the actual game itself. Uh, it's set in the US. There's been a fungus outbreak that's resulted in a zombie plague. <laughs> you know, this is all fairly paint by numbers, to be fair. Uh, this fungus turns humans into the infected, and there's all kinds of different infected types as well. 
And over time, the world has been rendered pretty unrecognizable or in zero G terms, quite recognizable because we watch a lot of this content. So this is our safe space. This is where we're most familiar. Um, so yeah, we're talking post-apocalypse, people living in quarantine zones, settlements, there's rebel fighters, and you've really got to fight to survive against these hordes of the infected. And the humans are also the most dangerous thing you'll run into. Exactly. Are the monsters (laughs) not humans, blah, blah, blah. It was us all along. The first game I think as well and what stands out about it is it focuses a lot on the core relationship between the two protagonists. We've got Joel who's a smuggler with a sad, dark past because there's always a sad, dark past, Um, and Ellie who's a young teenager who Joel needs to take from point A to point B for a price, of course, but it's never quite that simple. Uh, In the original game, Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson played the two main characters doing voice acting and motion capture, and Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey played Joel and Ellie in the TV adaptation. Wait a minute, isn't this the same plot as The Mandalorian? (laughs) It is. Oh, my God. It Actually, he's not gone too far. You need some Um, armour, though. Definitely need some Beskar armour. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, the pair make their way through a series of stunning game environments such as sewers, abandoned towns, forests, fighting the infected along the way, uh, typical weapons like shotguns, bows and arrows, rifles, melee weapons, and you can use combat and stealth tactics as well. Uh The beauty of the game is obviously the characters and situations that they meet along the way. It was the journey, not the destination, etc., and the moral dilemmas that arise. And the growing connection between the pair, which is obviously core to the game's appeal. Uh, the stakes feel pretty real and the violence is quite visceral, especially towards the end. There's definitely sequences. They're not pulling any punches here, but it feels like real survival and you really going on this journey with them. Uh, the game, the first game has also been called out in a positive way for its depictions of women in that. They're not overly sexualized. They're not cliche. They've got actual personalities. They drive the plot, etc. cetera. Uh, and as well as its depiction of LGBTI plus characters as well. Uh, I mean, improved, obviously, still would love to see a bit more of representation across gaming in general. That's kind of a rundown a bit on part one. And there is a part two, like I said, that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, I don't really want to dig into that because I think part one is really the start of the journey and where the TV series will start too. And obviously we get into spoiler territory if we go too far, but obviously there's two parts to it plus DLC, like I mentioned. So plenty of Last of Us content if you're interested in digging in or revisiting that. And it will be interesting for me to see how the TV show stacks up because game adaptations have not had the finest of reputations when it comes to quality, but I'm open. Well, I've really enjoyed The Witcher as an adaptation, but that has a a caveat to it. That's based upon stories. Exactly. Yeah. It's also got the game in between in the middle, but this one, I think The Last of Us has nothing but the game. Yes, that's right. So where the Witcher game and the TV series kind of both point to the book series as their original source, uh, this TV show is strictly yet an adaptation of this this game. And it's the same studio and creators as the Uncharted series, which is a video game series that was uh, adapted into the film with Tom Holland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that movie was adequate but not fantastic. But I think this is pretty meaty, um, human fleshy uh, content, I think, Also, the casting is pretty uh, spot on, in my opinion, and so I think they've got a lot of good odds stacking up here. So 
Yeah, as we've discussed, I've seen the first episode. Um, the <laughs> only the only thing I am waiting on is for them to differentiate themselves yeah. from the yeah. absolutely vast canon of The Walking Dead, for example, and mm. and Z Nation, and you know the other amazingly in the twenty first century zombie television shows that we have. Yeah, and that's the thing. We're in a totally different playing field now, right? Like what it was doing for the gaming industry, it was doing all these new things. It was fresh. The narrative, oh, my goodness, you know, we've actually got fleshed out characters, whereas you're right to differentiate itself on TV when Mm. we've got so like golden age of television, so much great genre content coming out. How is it going to translate that magic and set itself apart? So Mm. I, I totally agree with you, Rob. As you Let's often listen. say about the undead, remains to be seen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I guess let's transition out of that, talking about Last of Us video game series with a bit of a track from the score. So Gustavo Santolala, he scored both the games. He's a composer from Argentina. He won two Oscars for his film scoring work uh, on Brokeback Mountain and Babel and has also done scores for Amos Peros, 21 Grams, Motorcycle Diaries, and so on. Uh, And I wanted to play the track The Last of Us, which is pretty recognisable from The Last of Us Part 1 video game series. Hmm. This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero G. That was The Last of Us from the video game The Last of Us, composed by Gustava Santa Olala. However, did just look up that he worked on the score for the TV series as well, which makes a lot of sense because I think the soundtrack is a really big part of the atmosphere of the game. So happy to hear that he was brought on. Yeah, instantly recognisable because I've recently seen the first episode. There you go. Fantastic. Yeah, really creates a mood. So um, looking forward to digging into that TV show. Now, we're not doing much digging today, but we are diving quite Mm. deep. We recently chatted briefly about Avatar. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the original Avatar is a a lost Italian silent film from 1916, and it's based upon an 1856 novel by Theophile Galtius. I'm quite surprised that they've done a sequel to it all these years later, century later. (laughs) But you know what? That original uh, story actually was about swapping minds and bodies and stuff. So, oh, there you go. Yeah, even back then. Isn't yeah. incredible? Oh, no. Of course, we're talking about Avatar, The Way of Water, which is the first of at least three sequels to the 2009 film Avatar, which, of course, was written, directed and co-produced by now New Zealand-based Canadian-born filmmaker James Cameron, who is not the filmmaker referenced by Julia Cameron in the book uh, The Artist's Way. That's actually Martin Scorsese. In case you've ever <laughs> looked at that, it's a common mistake. I keep running into people who think that. Okay, he, he, Cameron bought a home in New Zealand inspired by his time making the first Avatar there. And oh, now wow. lives there and he's got an organic farm and <gasps> produces um, – he, he's very much into uh, meatless uh, plant-based food. He's, okay. He, He's a vegan uh, and has got this sort of um, uh, co-business with um, Peter Jackson. So, Oh, that's pretty wholesome and nice, isn't it? Yeah. Now, the sequels are supposedly coming out in 2024, the next two, mm-hmm. and 2026. It depends on whether or not Avatar 2 makes any money, and boy, has it. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it's really it's done pretty well considering it was such a long wait between it and the first. And you know, I've I've heard a few people sort of snidely say, "Well, the first Avatar had no influence at all. It just came and went, and there wasn't much merchandise." As if that's some sort of <laughs> some sort of point of reference. Uh, but you know, it actually it actually kicked off the three D television business. Oh, even if you say didn't like the film or don't remember it, you cannot deny its impact on mm. cinema. Mm. And actually on pop culture too, there was a, a heavy influence upon pop culture. I saw so many cosplays and, yeah. and so many people who just wanted to live on Pandora. I get, <laughs> I get that, you know, I, I, I see that. Mm. <laughs> As they say. Mm. James Cameron, Terminator 1 and 2, uh-huh. Aliens in 1986, which I think is one of the great science fiction movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Abyss, Diving Underwater in 1989. Of course, Titanic in 97, all those yep. documentaries about the Titanic. He loves the sea. <laughs> Ghosts of the Abyss. Uh, I think he did one on the Bismarck as well, and dozens oh. of others. And, mm-hmm. and he executive produced the climate change documentary TV show, Years of Living Dangerously. Oh. I mean, you go back to his Piranha 2, The Spawning in 1982, more sort of watery aquatic stuff. Uh, True Lies in 1994, which is, was a bit of a divergence with Jamie Lee Curtis and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, and he has credits in writing or producing or visual effects or model making, all sorts of things. But he's actually known as a guy who likes to sort of do everything in all the departments, perhaps to a fault, you know. Uh, and he did uh, worked on Battle Beyond the Stars, Escape from New York. I think it was a matte artist in that or something. Uh, Rambo 2, worked on the script, Strange Days, the Soderbergh Solaris, uh, most recently Alita Battle Angel, and also the Terminator Dark Fate, which I thought was a very superior Terminator movie, going back to Galaxy of Terror and Android. He knows his science fiction genre. And don't forget, he was the executive producer a director and writer of the 2000 and 2002 series Dark Angel. Oh, I didn't know he was involved in that. Yeah, one of my favourites, and it helped kickstart Jessica Alba's career. And I am suddenly mindful that that show featured transgenic humans, which is to say super soldier humans who had, amongst other genetic enhancements, had cat DNA in their mix. And, of course, you look at the Na'vi and Pandora and you think, oh, yeah, they're big blue cats. <laughs> anyway, he was also, because he knows this genre, the host and executive producer of the documentary series, James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. I am king of the world, <laughs> basically. <laughs> look, to go through his awards and awards connected with his productions would take longer than an entire episode. But his films have won 21 Academy Awards five BAFTAs and seven Golden Globes. Two of his films are preserved in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. He's a National Geographic Explorer in Residence. Of course, he's visited the Titanic wreck and also instrumental in um, many things connected with the Titanic, too many to mention here, but has also gone to the depths of the Challenger Deep. You know, that's a, a thing that not many people have been able to do. He had the uh, the Nirenberg Prize for Science in public by the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. He was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame at the Museum of Pop Culture. Ray Bradbury Award from the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. He's got stars on the Canadian and Hollywood Walks of Fame. 
And he's got a species of frog named after him too. <laughs> so all these things and more. Now, I think we'll have a little track here, which is calling back to Dark Angel, the original TV series soundtrack. And this is the theme song from the show, a bit extended, uh, Public Enemy and MC Light. It was very, very oh, boppy and funky and cyberpunky. And in that, that era when you would have a strong young female protagonist, so this is a Buffy kind of era and also Alias and, and that kind of thing. And she was a bicycle courier, so she was quite dear to my heart sort of <laughs> in many ways. Zero-G yeah. is fun, as you were. Okay, there we have a little bit of the Dark Angel main title theme, Public Enemy and MC Light. They, they actually did a soundtrack album for Dark Angel uh, a lot of it's needle drops, of course, but, you know, I loved that show. I'm so sad that it only lasted two seasons, but yeah. if you can catch up with one of the three spin-off novels they did, they oh. did actually finish the show off in the spin-off novel. It's always good. You've got backups. You can go to comic, book, whatever. Yeah. Avatar in 2009. Now, once again, I've heard people snidely say that it had so little lasting impact that people have forgotten the plot points. I think not, but I'll give you a quick pricey. In the mid-22nd century, Earth human spacefarers have set up a mining colony on Pandora, a moon orbiting the gas giant planet Polythemus, which in turn orbits around the star Alpha Centauri A. Now, the Alpha Centauri solar system is around about four and a half light years from Earth, so it's one of our very closest neighbours, which is unfortunate for them. Because, you know, there goes the neighbourhood once the humans get star travel. And I often think that this universe first feels a bit like the Aliens universe. You could imagine that quite easily. Now, the humans are mining a magic mineral, cheekily named unobtainium, which is an engineering thing and a bit of a joke. But nevertheless, it's essential to advance technology in this era on Earth. Now, Pandora has a voluptuously abundant biosphere with multitudes of life forms connected by a, a Gaia-like gestalt known as Aya. And this is uh, the indigenous sentience, call it that. From this global linkage, they derive a form of immune system response to the invading humans. So it's like in the classic science fiction trope of being a hell planet in terms of what happens to humans there. A lot of the biology reacts with hostility to the humans, and, and that biology is often way bigger than the equivalent predators on Earth. And this, coupled with an atmosphere unbreathable by humans, required a large, heavily mechanised paramilitary presence to protect the mining operation. So, so far like Earth history in lots of places too. Uh, to facilitate a parallel scientific study of the planet, which has spin-off benefits for the military, human <laughs> scientists temporarily upload their consciousnesses into clone bodies of the Na'vi, the 10-foot-tall, blue-skinned, sentient indigenous bipeds. And these avatars can interact with the natives in the planet without triggering the planet's immune attack response. So, you know, it's actually quite intricate when you think about it. The larger the scale of the mining operations, the larger the hostile response to the human's incursion. So the military thinks that they can use the avatars as scouts optimised for the local environment. So they begin by inserting an ex-Marine into the program, Jake Sully, Sam Worthington playing him, and they assume he'll be loyal to the, royal, the human race. Well, Jake, as you would guess, finds the Na'vi life so enthralling 
uh, as his avatar enters into a romantic relationship with the Navi female, Neytiri, and he becomes disenchanted with the mining operations rapacious ways anyway, so he goes native and he becomes a double agent using his knowledge of Earth's military strategy and tactics to lead a successful counterattack against the puny humans, eventually forcing most of the interlopers to leave Pandora. Sorry, that's a big spoiler for the first film, but you know what? It is pretty much entirely predictable. Now, you can either think of that as a strength or a weakness or a bit of both. I think it's probably a bit of both for me. And this kind of indigenous fight back against colonizers is, of course, parallel to Earth history, as witnessed by the 19th century battle of Isandlwana in Africa with the Zulus versus the British, or the Battle of the Little Bighorn, uh, First Nation Americans versus the US Cavalry, or the Battle of Adua, which was Ethiopians versus the Italian army, which hardly anyone's heard of except for students of Last Stands. (laughs) Now, students of history will know that these singular victories of local forces were important but eventually ended up being reversed more or less as the colonisers later returned better equipped in greater numbers or better led alongside the additional motivation of seeking revenge, which is ironic considering they're the ones invading the people's countries. So it's pretty much the same in Avatar. In Avatar 2, The Way of Water, water, it's 16 Earth years later. Uh, Jake, Sully and Naitira now have a whole brood of children. They've got two biological sons, Natiam and Loak are the two sons, and a daughter, Tuck, and they also have an adopted daughter, Kiri, who was born from human scientist Grace Augustine's inert Navi avatar. So after Grace's human body died, her avatar gave birth. And this is oh quite... Oh, my God! <laughs> It's quite mysterious. And okay. yeah, if you're thinking like um, Immaculate Conception or whether or not it might have been one of her fellow scientists, you know, um, that's that's sort of in the air or the water as the case may be. Now, they also have another adopted child in the Sully Squad, as they call it as well, uh, a human boy nicknamed Spider. And he was left behind by the withdrawing human colonists as they fled back to Earth. Uh, babies could not be taken into the hypersleep. So, you know, this is a, a terrible thing, but they have looked after the kid. And, yes, you're asking me the question, well, how does he breathe in the Navi atmosphere? Well, Jake still has links with a small outpost of the human scientists who helped the Navi rebel against the miners. And they stayed on Pandora. They've got equipment and a little base. And, and in case you're wondering, that's how he still has air for the breathing mask that he wears. Now, We'll go into the cast in a minute, but I wanted to play a track here. So that's the story, basically. Humans back in great force. Um, they're mining. They're probably mining the unobtainium still. I'm, I don't have any references to that in the in the story. But they've got a much bigger beachhead colony, really huge, uh, and they're exploiting the planet's resources very heavily because Earth is dying. Probably because of practices just like this, you know. So we'll go into that a bit later, but we'll have a track first. And this is uh, from the Avatar soundtrack album, one by Zoe Saldana. 
Is There Nothing That She Can't Do? And this is uh, from the original soundtrack album, and it's called The Song Chord. This is China Mievel, author of The City and the City, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM, Melbourne. Zoe Saldana, The Song Chord from the Avatar The Way of Water soundtrack album. There's nothing that she can't do, is there, really? Incredible. And she's also now I saw that she's the only actress that, that has been in the top four highest grossing movies ever with both Avengers and now both Avatars. She's incredible. And she is one of the stars in the, uh, well, the virtual form. It's really weird when you think about it. We were just talking about the Avatar technology where they're uploading the minds of human beings into the alien bodies in the story. And I think that's quite interesting because they're actually, you know, the actors are doing like motion capture and voice acting. And are they not doing the same thing? (laughs) It's fascinating. So, okay, in this movie, Avatar The Way of Water, we have Sam Worthington reprising his role as Jake Sully. And it's actually an interesting story arc because, of course, he was inserted originally as a, kind of a quizzling, as a, a spy into the Navi culture. And now he is, of course, a chief in the forest people clan, living in those gorgeous, absolutely multicolored planetary landscapes, which are just one of the joys and wonders of the Avatar franchise. And, you know, I mean, he's he's... Married to Naitira, and then they have kids, some of them biological, some of them adopted. And, you know, he's now the friend of the Navi and one of their leaders too. And, you know, I wrestled with this in my conscious about the whole idea of the the white saviour, basically, or the blue-white one in this case. Um, you know, and it's all in science fiction. It's like this, only the strong right arm of the Earth man can bring freedom to the oppressed aliens. It is not often always the case that um, it's humans who are the oppressors. Although I'm thinking of uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's The Word for World is Forest, which has got some similar ideas going on in it too. Um, but, you know, so... I do agree with that, but, you know, this is far more than one per like Dances with Wolves, far, far more than um, uh, a, an ex-cavalryman going off to join the First Nations people and bringing some of the tactics and so on, or uh, Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai, you know, because the technological difference between the Navi and the humans is actually way vaster than that, way vaster. The humans have starships, for God's sake. They can clone creatures. You know, this this is a big technological gap. And I actually don't think, no, no matter how good intentioned or how much uh, home turf advantage the Navi have, I actually don't think they would have been able to make much headway against the human technology. They actually did need an inside man. Now, whether or not they needed an inside human or an outside human in this case, to the extent that they do in the first movie, well, that's going to depend upon your taste. And also perhaps on whether or not you are a First Nations person. I do not speak for any First Nations people anywhere in the world. Uh, so, you know, there is a there is a, some complexity to that, I think, in this particular case. Anyway, moving on, and that's an entire thing we did talk about with the first Avatar. Moving on now. Um, 
he actually is kind of funny because Jake is now, as a parent, he is bothered and bewildered by especially his teen kids. And, you know, it's actually hilarious as he's he's shifted to being a, basically a uh, uh, sort of an insurgent leader. He's still that, but he's also leading a very insurgent group of kids. And I found that quite affecting and moving and realistic too. Mm, mm. And, and, you know, you might just think that that's like any sitcom or something like that, but it is real life. And I actually lose count of the times that the kids get them into dire situations and you go, oh, come on. And then you stop and you think, no, that's exactly what kids would do. Absolutely, exactly. Of course, this being a, a science fiction movie, all of these kids are significant in some way or another. You know, there's a, one of the kids bonds with um, one of the whale-type creatures. Now, this movie is called The Way of Water, and I haven't mentioned it yet, but what actually happens is they have to decamp from the forest and take refuge with the reef people. Uh, so this is very, I suppose, Polynesian, New Zealand. So, you know, maybe again playing into James Cameron's own family life and the fact that he now lives in New, Ze- in New Zealand. So there's a, a whole lot of that in there. And I think he's actually uh, put this all together extremely well. He's injected uh, a good feeling for um, a sea-based civilization. Um, the visuals are absolutely stunning. I did see it in 3D. I felt like 3D, and I actually uh, found this one even more stunning than the first one, which is all basically um, running through trees and aviating over them, that sort of thing. This one has that too, but it also has the oceans, and it's amazing. I think last week I was uh, talking about, or one of the other weeks we talked about, one of the moments of quietude in this film, because it's massive spectacle, but... Cameron's love of the sea allows him the time, because it is a a fairly hefty movie, uh, also to take a little bit of a study of one of the characters just floating in the shallows, absolutely mesmerised by the play of light and shade on the the sand. It's classy to be able to do that kind of thing, I think. So in a way, he's actually incorporated a medium that he's been fascinated with, as we saw with the other films, Titanic. And this makes yep. this makes Titanic look like messing about on the river in a rowboat. <laughs> how is the because obviously it's now set in the water. How is that? Because you know we've watched quite a few movies lately where we've discussed a bit about how they deal with underwater scenes, the motion of being in the water, and so on. How does it play out in this one? Totally convincing. You know, I'm not exactly sure how. They did all of it. I have to go through the the making of sort of stuff to figure it all out. But I know that the cast, and these are the voice caster, that they all learned how to free dive, you know, and Kate Winslet ended up being able. Yeah, she ended up being able to hold a breath underwater for quite a long time for Kate Winslet, I suppose. (laughs) She doesn't have to wear a corset in this one at least. Um, you know, so we have Sam Worthington there struggling with his entire unruly family. And, you know, when you think about it, when their mum is Neytiri, who's this, like, fiery hellion, uh, almost like a, a sort of a, a blue, um, <laughs> it's like the Hunger Games, because <laughs> she's like an archer, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and Jake Sully, who's like a former Marine and all this sort of stuff, and you just think, yeah, I could see the kids turning out this way. So I'm um, Sam Worthington, we know, you know, Australian um, 
I think British born, but he's actually, you know, grew up in Australia. Uh, we've seen him in lots of different bits and pieces. He's done a lot of voice work in video games too, which I always amuses me when oh. I found that out. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, he's been in quite a few things since uh, 2009. Uh, uh, the Clash of the Titans, little mini fan franchise, um, Hacksaw Ridge and so on. I think he's fine in this movie. You know, he, he knows how to play it. <laughs> he does. He knows how to play this character. He knows how to yeah. act like a, a harassed dad. <laughs> you know, and they play because, you know what, uh, James Cameron movies are all love stories basically. Mm. Uh, and he loves his family. That's, mm. that's pure and simple. And I can't fault him for that. Is it a I, broken family? You know that trope that I hate? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, well, yeah, it is Hollywood still. I think also their rapport, like I've seen a few interviews and some of their press junket and press tour, they oh. obviously get along well. Okay. They're, they're both parents and they've, you know, they. I think they've actually found a lot to resonate with in the characters. And I kind of like that, you know, this time has passed and we've brought back the same actors and they've grown as well as the characters have grown. And mm. I kind of like that. And, they, you know, they joke a bit about, you know, Zoe Saldana has obviously gone and been in some huge roles. Oh. And, you know, they just, I think I can, you can tell that they got along well and and that is a big part of how, you know, I think they could play a harassed family and get that real actual energy going. It's funny. I mean, she's been Gamora and Ahura, and, you know, it's so many of these different feisty characters really to use a, a phrase it's probably actually way dialed down she's way past that um here again now she's got children to protect don't get in her way <laughs> although i think because it's a larger cast her character does take a step back you know because she has to really uh, in this big ensemble cast um interestingly enough zoe saldana is left-handed and so is James Cameron. And I didn't realise this, but if you watch all the Navis in the first film and in this one too, they're all left-handed. Ah, yes. So, you know, I thought that was quite an interesting little take on it. Uh, even if the actors playing them weren't left-handed, then they had to play as left-handed, which is an interesting reversal of the way, um, you know, society has often forced left-handed people to use their right hands. Anyway, speaking of cast who come back for this one, Sigourney Weaver. Now, she, well, the last we saw her, she was being absorbed into the uh, the uh, the world mind uh, Aya, into the uh, the home tree sort of setup that they had. Now, she plays the character of Kira, one of the four, sort of fourteen year old daughter of um, Grace Augustine's Navi avatar. So, obviously, you know, her, her, yeah, her face. Remember, this is like a sort of an immaculate conception and something right, to do with okay. Aya. Interesting, well. interesting. Okay, yeah, so she's sort of, of playing that yeah. that child yeah. of her previous character. Yeah. Now, this is this would open, this would be eye-opening in non-science fiction, but it's like, you know, before breakfast we believe this. Uh, so her character, Kira, looks like Sigourney Weaver, and the clue that I spotted and other people have, uh, spotted as well, of course, is that the necklace that Grace, the Navi necklace that Grace wore in the first Avatar film, the child is also wearing. So, you know, and, and I'm really impressed that Sigourney, Sigourney is able to do the voice as a 14-year-old, but, you know, your voice doesn't necessarily change too much over the course of your life, you know, beyond a certain, after a certain point. Uh, and she's wonderful in, in this. There's such a sense of wonder, actually, wonderful 
that this child has, and she actually is uh, far more linked into the planet Pandora than anyone had thought. Uh, and, you know, there is obviously a linkage in here going forwards for the rest of the films. Some of it's on display here, but it's really a setup. You can see it pushing forward. No, that's not like a uh, uh, an Avengers cameo with Samuel L. Jackson walking in at the end. But, yeah, I'm really impressed with her. I mean, Signority Weaver we've seen so much since the first Avatar. Um, she actually reprised the character of Ripley for um, a video game called Alien Isolation where she did the voices for the, the game. Uh, and she was also in um, uh, Neil Blomkamp's um, science fiction film Chappie. And we saw her in that um, uh, Simon Pegg movie, Paul, and she was a villain in The Cabin in the Woods and the villain in the Defenders series, and she also voiced a character in Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Um, I, I, I think what they've done with her character is great. You know, it's a, it's a real elegant solution to a problem that they might have had going forward. We've got Kate Winslet playing one of the Reef people uh, who is uh, pregnant in the movie. And she's actually kind of, um, you can see that uh, she's going to be uh, a character going forwards in this too. So I don't know whether they're going to go to an ice planet, an ice part of the planet next or a desert part of the planet. Well, I, I had heard that they're going to do, you know, it's like earth, earth, water, fire, air. He's going to do all the elements. So whatever oh. element is next, I guess it'll be that environment. They're going to have a fifth element. They have got some blue aliens in that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you know, and and um, we've seen her, uh, Kate, Kate in uh, Contagion and the uh, Divergent series and other things since then. Of course, since two thousand and nine. So um, she's a, a highly important character, as is Cliff Curtis playing Tonawari, who's the um, uh, the clan chief, the Metkayina Reef people. Um, and uh, he's her husband. There's no doubt that she's in charge. <laughs> it's just like, you know. So, of course, we still have some um, uh, people who are playing um, uh, scientists left over from the first movie. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of uh, protagonists who I will go into in a moment. Plus some um, Navi uh, life forms who are not, sorry, Pandoran life forms who are not the Navi. Um, some whale-type creatures who are also sentient, as indeed they are on Earth, as far as we can ascertain. All right, so uh, another track here, uh, Avatar, The Way of Water, by Crunchyroll, and they put out this neat little single. Hi, I'm George Takei, and I play Admiral Sulu in Star Trek. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Admiral? Hey, a guy can dream, can't he? <laughs> Crunchyroll doing their thing with a single of Avatar, The Way of Water. Now, what we've decided to do is roll over to keep diving, to keep swimming, just like that fish in the famous film. Just keep swimming for Avatar, The Way of Water in next week's Zero-G. So we've had a, a little bit of a, a look into it, actually quite a long little dalliance in the shallows of this epic film and we're going to continue on next week and probably also pick up 
our thoughts about uh, The Last of Us as it moves from video game into television show. I think there's yeah. been at least, what, two episodes out now? Yeah, there'll be a couple for us to dig into and discuss. Mm. Uh, I'm going to have lots of thoughts and feelings. So, yeah, that'll be yeah. that'll be good to tackle. Hmm. Well, that's a bit about it for Zero G. We will be back with more water <laughs> next week on Zero G. And I'd like to thank our podcaster, Alice Savage. And we'll go out with, <laughs> I was just thinking that the best thing to do would be to put in our weekly Bowie track, which will be Rebel Rebel, <laughs> um, as interpreted by say george from the life aquatic another underwater film thank you megan thank you rob until next week bip 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 g'day this is rob jan thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r zero g a weekly radio show exploring science fiction fantasy and historical zero g is broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every monday Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.